So last week we talked about the kingdom of God, the, the um, biblical, overarching biblical storyline. And this morning we're going to talk about uh, how God brings people into his kingdom. So we're going to talk about the doctrines of grace, meaning the teaching about how God saves men and women. So Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how does grace come to reign leading to eternal life? Well, these are the doctrines of grace. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The term is normally associated with Reformed theology. You might have heard of that before. Maybe not. You might be like, what exactly is that? I remember being a student at Georgia Tech. Uh, I was already a believer, but kind of still young in my faith and growing. Got involved in a group called Campus Crusade. Boy, just took off in my, my faith uh, with God, learning how to share the gospel with others and eager to invest spiritually in other people. And we'd have a weekly meeting every Thursday night and about 100 students would come together. And I was eager to make people feel welcome. And so always looking for the guys sitting by themselves, you know. And so I saw this one guy one night, went to sit next to him and get to know him a little bit, introduce myself. And remember he said this one comment. He said very little. But one thing he did say was... Uh, it was his first time. He said, you need to know, I'm Reformed. And I was like, hmm. I had to admit at the time I didn't really know what he was talking about. I knew enough to know that uh, he wasn't saying, I was in prison for a while, but I've straightened out my life and I'm, I'm Reformed now. <laughs> I, I, I knew he was talking about uh, something about a particular understanding of the Bible and a particular understanding about the God of the Bible. Um, but I must say, uh, there, was a, there was a sense of arrogance and theological elitism that he um, kind of gave off. So um, just trying to handle that conversation as best I could. It's, it's sad that uh, that's, that's the case. Too often, um, those who hold to Reformed theology, particularly those really new to it, um, they, they can come off that way. Uh, perhaps some of you have encountered those in the Reformed camp, and that has been your experience. You've been burned by it. Yeah, we're getting to it. Yeah. Yeah, here it comes. I'm building some anticipation. So, so good. It's working here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, perhaps you're a bit wary of this topic because of your, your former experience. At Christ's Covenant, uh, we unashamedly hold to a high view of God in salvation. We believe salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, but holding to Reformed theology, uh, holding to the doctrines of grace, ought to make you humble and tender-hearted because you know you have been saved by the mercies of God and you, 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 don't, you don't bring anything else to the table. You, you've been completely saved by the grace of God. And so that means all sinful boasting has got to go. There's no room for it. And I think that's what you're going to find here at Christ's Covenant. By and large, by the grace of God, you're going to find a people who may call themselves Calvinists. But they're not so much excited about Calvinism. They're excited about Christ. Welcome. Come on in. Good to see you. Well, what are we really talking about? Uh, Kay is asking, what is Reformed theology? Uh, you've just heard me link Reformed theology with Calvinism, so that, that's a clue. 
Uh, theology just means the study of God, and Reformed theology is a kind of systematic theology. It's a way of putting together the full scope of the teachings of Scripture into a coherent unity. So that's, that's one of the basic assumptions of Reformed theology, that the Bible is the very Word of God, and it holds together. Its various teachings cohere, that there's a unity there. They fit together. So there's no internal conflict or confusion in what it teaches. And the goal of systematic theology then is not to impose a preconceived system on the Bible, but rather to come to it humbly, to understand what it's teaching, and to discover how these truths fit together. So the word reformed, it comes from the Protestant Reformation. So you hear that, that word reformation in the 16th century. Uh, this was a period of time where followers of Jesus Christ protested the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. That They stood up against it and they worked to bring about a recovery of the gospel under the leadership of men like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. So the word reformed comes from the reformers of the 16th century. We call these men reformers because they wanted the existing church of the day to reform, to to be shaped or formed as before. So they're not coming up with uh, bold new ideas, really. They were, they were seeking to uh, call the church back to some glorious old ideas, actually, that had always, always been there. So there's more to unpack here than we have time for. So I'm, I'm just going to look at three simple statements to get our minds around uh, the doctrines of grace. They're simple, but they're actually, they're going to get you pretty far down the road. Uh, these are things you can bank your life on. So, first, God is sovereign. Second, man is sinful. And third, salvation comes from God. I think it was J.I. Packer, he said, uh, he advocated a three-word theology that you can Take it to the bank. God saves sinners. If you can remember that, if you can hang on to that, you're, you're doing well. Okay, God is sovereign. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we mean that God has the absolute right to do all that He pleases. We see this in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. So there's no higher authority in the universe. Nothing that transpires is outside His control. Uh, from the drink that you accidentally spill on your shirt to the orbit of Jupiter around the sun, God is controlling everything. And this flows from the fact that He is the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So He is the Creator. He's also the King. Psalm 95, the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of his hand. So God is high above humanity. Uh, there's a clear difference between we the creatures and him the creator. But in our day, you know, people want to blur that distinction as much as possible. Uh, we want to make God a little more domestic, a little more manageable to our tastes, more compliant. And even in the church, Christians can become very casual about God, I think. Uh, we think of him as our our easygoing buddy, you know, amiable. He's always amiable and understanding. Uh, but, but I would say that represents a kind of sickness in the church, actually. That, that's, it's not commendable at all. Uh, while everyone is trying to bring God close, it's interesting to see how the reformers, particularly John Calvin, 
uh, labored to put God at a distance, actually. And that, there's a certain health to that. Uh, Calvin, in his writings, he wanted to help people see that there's a great gulf between the mortal and the divine. He, he wrote, Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. So God is transcendent and infinite in his majesty. And I'd argue that your enjoyment of God will actually be stunted until you come to see this. So far from this being uh, God, we don't want to paint God as, as distant, abstract, and cold. He, he is transcendent. He is far above us. And yet, as we come to see our rightful place in view of this great God, boy, that just ignites your, your heart with worship and with joy, actually. That's how it should work. 1541, Calvin wrote a catechism for the children of Geneva, uh, beginning this way. So the teacher says, what is the principal end of human life? The student replies, it is to know God. Why do you say that? Because he has created us and put us on earth to be glorified in us. And it is surely right that we dedicate our lives to his glory since he is the beginning of it. That's putting things in the right order. So God is our creator and king. And that's the starting point of the Bible. And therefore, God's sovereignty is the starting point of our theology. So I've mentioned Calvin several times. Uh, maybe you've heard someone say, I'm a Calvinist. Uh, it's probably best to ask them what they mean by that when, when they say that. Uh, I'm not super big on labels, um, and I think that's even part of the culture of Christ's covenant. You know, we don't wear Calvinism on our sleeves, you know. But labels are kind of inevitable, I think. Uh, I, I think they can be helpful for dialogue. Uh, here's B.B. Warfield's definition of a Calvinist. He says, the Calvinist is the man, I'm sure, or woman, he would say, who has seen God and who, having seen God in his glory, is filled on the one hand with a sense of his own unworthiness to stand in God's sight as a creature and much more as a sinner. And on the other hand, with adoring wonder that nevertheless, this God is a God who receives sinners. He who believes in God without reserve and is determined that God shall be God to him in all his thinking, feeling, willing, and the entire compass of his life activities, intellectual, moral, spiritual, throughout all his individual, social, religious relations, by the force of that strictest of all logic which presides over the outworking of principles into thought and life, by the very necessity of the case, is a Calvinist. A little wordy there, but I think you got the gist. Boy, God is just shot through everything in the life of a Calvinist, how, how he thinks and feels and everything. God's at the center. Joel Beakey, he's a modern-day theologian, said, to be reformed means to be theocentric. So theo, theos, it's Greek for God, God-centered. Uh, to be reformed is to be God-centered. So that's what you're going to find here at Christ's Covenant. We, we're, not, we're not perfect by any means. Uh, but as a core principle of our church, we are striving to put God at the center of our thinking and our teaching and our worship, everything. So God is sovereign. We believe this view of God touches every other doctrine. So that's why we begin here. What about the salvation of men and women? You know, what about that doctrine? You know, if we are stuck in a pit of destruction because of our sin, 
are we able to find some way out? This brings us to the second key point of Reformed theology, total human inability. Man is dead in sin. Uh, maybe you've heard of a man named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was a doctor at St. Bartholomew's. It's a very prestigious uh, school of medicine in London. But eventually he became the pastor of Westminster Chapel. Uh, this was 1939 to 1968, good long while. Uh, the church sits right next to Buckingham Palace. So there he was. Uh, Lloyd-Jones actually became a Christian in his, uh, early in his practice as a physician. When the reality of sin came crashing into his life, uh, he writes in his biography, or somebody else wrote about him, telling the tale, This lesson never came home to Lloyd-Jones more for forcefully than it did in 1923 when he had to spend a number of weeks reclassifying his chief's case histories under their respective diseases. Porter's notes, I guess that was his chief, revealed that perhaps as many as 70% of his private cases could not be classified under recognized medical criteria at all. Their basic need was still untreated. For once, Hoarder's diagnoses did not go far enough. The real problem, which Lloyd-Jones now saw writ large on Hoarder's case notes, was neither medical nor intellectual. It was one of moral emptiness and spiritual hollowness. Hoarder's card index was to him what the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones was to Ezekiel. So this growing recognition of his own sinfulness, it just came home to his heart. Lloyd-Jones said, God brought me to see the real cause of all my troubles and ills and that of all men was an evil and fallen nature which hated God and loved sin. My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but that I was wrong at the very center of my being. So this is what the Bible calls being dead in sins. We call it the doctrine of total depravity. Now, total, total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be, but, but it means that from the very moment we were conceived, every part of our being has been tainted by sin. Now, there's no part of our nature that is untouched by sin and its effects. Uh, Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Romans 3.10-12, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So we were born in sin, and we were dead in sin. We were born dead. So, so this is our situation. Man must choose God in order to live, but man cannot choose God because he's dead. Dead people do not make decisions. John Owen said, in this state of spiritual death, there is not any disposition inclining to spiritual life. So Nick Lingle, he spoke to you last week. He was telling me about a uh, seminary class he once took. The professor took the whole class to a, an old Civil War cemetery. And he had each of them stand before a tomb and recite John eleven forty three. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And instead of saying Lazarus, he had them read the name that was on that tomb and say that person's name. Of course, nothing happened but just creepy silence, right? 
The point was we can't bring others to life. We can't bring ourselves to life. So if God is at a distance, we've said that, right, sovereign and transcendent, and men and women are dead in sins, they're unable and they're unwilling to seek him, then how can anyone be saved? So this is the bad news of the gospel. You know, we, we can't soften these hard edges. It is what it is. The answer, of course, though, is our third point. Salvation comes from God. This is the good news of the gospel. <clears throat> this is what Jonah cries out from the belly of the whale, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the message of the whole Bible in five words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So God initiates salvation. He is, he's the prime mover. Uh, he's the first actor. Uh, coming to Jesus begins with the Father graciously tugging our hearts towards Him. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And it's undeniable that, that God chooses whom He will draw. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 39, uh, Peter, he's preaching at Pentecost. He says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this is what the Bible calls election. The elect are those whom God has graciously chosen to save. And this is spelled out very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read just a long passage. Just let these sentences just wash over you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." It's just phrase upon phrase upon phrase that God is sovereign. He, he moves according to the purpose of His will towards us. And He, 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 he saves us. So he, he is the giver. We are the receivers. So He, he mercifully moves towards us. We, we could do nothing for ourselves. And He adopts us into His family. He forgives us our trespasses. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. And astoundingly, he chose to lavish his love on us before the world even began. So uh, Danielle and I, my mother-in-law is here today, uh, we, uh, we came into these doctrines of grace in college. Uh, we were going to, to a church where these things were being preached. I, I don't think we'd ever heard these things before. This guy was preaching about the sovereignty of God and the glory of God. And we'd go home. 
Um, we were dating at the time. We weren't, weren't yet, weren't even engaged, but we would talk about the sermon, and I'd be driving there, and I remember it just kind of hit us. You know, we kind of looked at each other, and we're Christians. We have trusted in Jesus, and yet, apparently, God decided to save us even before we were born. And there was like this moment of silence in the car, you know, just taking in this, this massive truth. I think that's when I became a Calvinist, to be honest, you know. I don't banty around that label, but anyway, just so we've talked about the term, and so you can kind of get what I'm talking about here. That was a major paradigm shift for us to, to move from a more man-centered theology to a God-centered theology. Charles Spurgeon Great preacher of the 19th century, he's got a similar story. He was 16 years old. He says, One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you become a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. I find that really helpful. Salvation must come from God. He must predestine and draw those uh, who he wants in his family because there is no one who naturally seeks for God. We are all, we are all naturally enemies of God. That, that's how Scripture speaks of us prior to coming to know Jesus. Psalm 14, 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. So, so no one seeks God. We have to be drawn by God. But you might ask yourself, how does God decide who he's going to draw, right? On what basis? <clears throat> I'm reading a lot of scripture to you today, right? Because scripture, scripture is our authority here. Romans 9, 10 through 16, Paul writes, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is, it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy." So none of us deserve his mercy. It would be just of God to condemn all of us. But in his mercy, he has chosen to save some. And it's not because of anything inherent in us either, as we've just read. So there's a, there's a certain tension here. 
right? Uh, God is wholly responsible for our salvation, and yet there must be a human response, right? Uh, we must repent and believe the gospel for the forgiveness of our sins. Does this mean we contribute to our salvation? And if so, what percent? You know, uh, if, if we do have a contribution to make, doesn't that mean we have something we could boast about? Well, God's design is that he initiates and therefore he receives all the glory and credit. Uh, and yet man must respond with repentance and faith. It's like a, like a rope that's been strung across a pulley uh, and, and on a barn maybe. And you, in order to get to the top floor, you've got to grab both of those ropes to get up. If you, if you just grab one, you're not going to go anywhere. It's not going to work. I think, again, Spurgeon, a uh, story about him, he was asked, Can you, sir, reconcile the sovereignty of God and human responsibility? And he said, Well, I could try, but I don't reconcile friends. The, these two truths are, they're friends in Scripture. They sit side by side. I cannot satisfactorily explain this to you, how they come together, philosophically. Uh, in fact, I think you make the problem worse by trying to do so. Uh, but th there has to come a submission to God's word. Uh, I am responsible before God for my sin. I will be held accountable. And yet I know I, I, am, I am only saved by the mercy of God. It's not about me mustering up. It's, none of us are going to pass through the doors of heaven and pat ourselves on the back and say, boy, I'm, I'm glad I made the right call. Boy, we are going to be speechless before the mercy of God. And maybe not speechless. Maybe we'll have a whole lot to say in, in thanks and, and praise and song. Now, we cannot credit ourselves. Okay. God's initiation comes first, and it's primary. There's two tones there in Scripture, no doubt, but I think one is, is louder, and that's the sovereignty of God. We've got nothing to boast about. So... Um, might be a helpful story here. I'll end with this. There's a guy named Mark Webb. He was invited to a Baptist church to give a presentation on Calvinism in the Sunday school series on cults, uh, the cult of Calvinism. So uh, some, some Baptist churches see it that way. We don't, but he says, after giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven, and men are thronging to get in the door, and God is saying to various ones, Yes, you may come, but not you, or you, or you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one, and that one, and this one over here, and that one over there, and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. Man, that is a really helpful illustration. 
I think he goes on to say, if you perish in hell, blame yourself as it is entirely your fault. But if you, sh- if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belong all praise and glory, for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. So there's Reformed theology in a nutshell. God is sovereign, man is dead in sins, and salvation belongs to God.